Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. Good morning. We're going to continue our sermon series on the Ten Commandments, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, it's on page 73, if you are using one of the Bibles that we provide. Uh, So first we will read all of the Ten Commandments, and then we'll talk about number seven in particular. So hear now the Word of God. Exodus 20, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. Normally, after I read a text, I pray. But I'm going to ask you to pray. Because the amount of attack I've been under spiritually this week has been unprecedented in my life, and I think it's because of the importance of what we're going to discuss this morning. So let me be honest and open with you. Uh, This is not going to be easy for any of us, I don't think, uh, particularly me. And so can I just ask you to take a moment and close your eyes and bow your head and ask the Lord to uh, use me right now to, to push back the attacks of the evil one so that we can see the glory of Christ in this commandment. Can I just ask you to do that, please? Thank you. Let me pray too. Father, I thank you that you have drawn us here today. Thank you that you have given us your word to gather around so that we can see how glorious our Lord Jesus truly is. Would you make sure that happens here today? Thank you for my brothers and sisters who just lifted me up in prayer and uh, pray that you would apply those prayers now as we look at this most precious, precious word of yours and particularly this seventh commandment. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake, amen. Okay, so we're going to continue this series that we've been in on the uh, Ten Commandments and we're talking about the seventh commandment today, you shall not commit adultery. And I want to start out by just showing us that in the same way 
that the uh, previous commandment, you shall not murder, is, it's a negative command, but it has a positive implication. So you shall not murder means you must protect and cherish life, which is what some of the things Mike was talking about last week. This commandment is the same way. The seventh commandment saying you shall not commit adultery carries with it profound positive implication saying that you must, we must cherish and protect marriage. Now, as we talk about this, I want you to know that I'm aware that there's three different categories of people in this room. There are people who have never committed adultery. There are people who have committed adultery and there are victims of adultery. So I want you to bear with me if we get to some hard parts or when we get to some hard parts. But this is, this is the, the, the reality though, that the reason God would command his people to not commit adultery is because he absolutely cherishes marriage Marriage and faithfulness in marriage are absolutely of a premium to God. They are so important to him, and so they must be important to us. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we absolutely have to protect and cherish marriage. That is what we are seeing here today. So those of us who are following Christ, we are disciples, and we are seeking to make disciples. Today we need to see how important marriage and faithfulness in marriage truly is. God loves marriage. He invented it. In fact, it's really amazing when you think about marriage or weddings and the trajectory of Scripture. I'll mention three things just to give us a little picture of God's love of marriage, love of his creation of marriage. Think about this. The very first human words recorded in Scripture were at a wedding. They were Adam's words when God presented Eve to him. He says, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Those are his wedding words, his wedding vows even. Okay, and so God creates the world, then he makes man and woman, and then there's a wedding. Okay, and then we see sin come into the world. So all through the Old Testament, we see, you know, marriage attacked and ravaged and, and being problematic. But then what's interesting is the New Testament time comes, Jesus comes on the scene, and how does he begin his ministry? How does he start to show the world that he is the divine incarnate son of God? It was at a wedding. In John chapter 2, they ran out of wine. That was a problem because that meant the party was going to die down and Jesus wanted them to continue to celebrate this beautiful thing called marriage. So he turns water into wine and not just wine, some amazing wine so that the celebration could continue. Okay? And then think about this. We can say that all of history is moving towards a wedding. Because the Bible teaches that Jesus will come back. We know that. That's one one of the reasons we worship him. He's going to come back and he's going to make all things new. And when he does, Revelation 19 calls that the wedding supper or the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ himself. And so that return of Christ is when Christ, the groom, is married to us, the people of God his church. And so we see this beautiful, interesting, powerful imagery of God creating the world and then having a wedding. Sin comes into the world. So he brings, he sends Christ to begin recreating the world because we're going to have a wedding. God absolutely loves marriage. It's absolutely got a beautiful purpose. And so uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today, uh, that, that marriage and faithfulness are so extremely valuable to God that they also must be very valuable to us. Faithfulness, faithfulness must, must be of a premium for us too. So here's how we're going to do this. We're going to look at cause and effect. Okay? We're going to start out by talking about the cause and the effect of marriage 
And then we'll talk about the cause and the effect of breaking the seventh commandment or committing adultery. And then we will talk about the cause and effect of faithfulness or keeping the seventh commandment. So keep your Bibles handy, please. Uh, we're going to be looking at some of the some of the texts I'll put on the screen, but a couple of places I want you to be looking in, in your copy of God's holy and inspired word. So let's talk about the, the cause and the effect of marriage. This is really amazing. If you look at uh, the, the, in Genesis, we get a picture of some of the practical things about marriage for, for human beings. And then what we have in Ephesians 5 is Paul taking that practical nature and then making it fit into the grand narrative of all history. And he shows us the ultimate purpose. So this is, uh, look at uh, Genesis 2, 18 and 24. These are on the screen here. And then Ephesians 5. In Genesis, it said, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then a few verses later, Moses writes, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so in the beginning, what we see is that the cause for something like marriage, practically speaking, is so that man was not alone. And then the effect of God giving Eve to Adam, uh, we see, is that the two become one. So two different individuals joined together to become one flesh, both to live together and have a family, but also to have the physical union of marriage. That's a huge part. Okay? And so then what Paul does for us in the New Testament is he, he broadens the scope and helps us see the, this beautiful thing about marriage. So we move to Ephesians 5 where Paul invokes what Moses had said by quoting him and then adds his interpretation, not just his, but the the divine interpretation. Okay, it says um, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, again, quoting Moses first, he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Then now Paul puts on the understanding uh, uh, as far as Christ is concerned. He says, verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So in other words, the ultimate purpose in marriage, in the grand scheme of things, the cause of marriage is that we need a picture of how God relates to his people. We need a picture. We need something that shows us how God relates to his people. And and so ultimately how Christ relates to his church. And so when we think about how Christ relates to his church and when we think about marriage, there's so much similarity in the way that when you marry somebody, what you're saying is I want to offer you unconditional love, unlimited forgiveness and pursue unshakable joy with you. That's what we're saying when we get married. And it's even uh, and it's so special because it's this profound picture of the ideal and perfect marriage. At least from God's side where God does Christ does extend to the church to you and me unconditional love unlimited forgiveness and he does it all for the unshakable joy that he has and we will have one day with him. And so you see that the effect of this then is that we begin to understand marriage more. But even more importantly, when we think of the ideal picture of marriage, we understand much more deeply and much more transformationally who Jesus is and what he has done and how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. So therefore, marriage is extremely important to God 
because of the picture it paints and the effect that picture has on us. So because God loves marriage and is invented marriage and, and, and absolutely uh, thinks marriage is the, one of the greatest things, we do too. Now, we don't love married people any more than single people, but we're talking about marriage today. And so we're talking about not committing adultery. I want you to know that we have a lot of things going on here on a regular basis that can help with marriage. Number one, your life groups. Your life groups can be a place where you are being strengthened in your marriage. Number two, we have marriage mentoring available. We have a whole ministry of people who have been there and done that. They've got the t-shirt. They've, they've figured marriage out as much as you can in this life. And they are, they're willing to and excited to meet with younger couples, people who don't have a clue or, or think they don't anyway. And um, they, they can meet together and they can learn. We offer that. We also have the Breakaway Marriage Retreat, which some of us went on just a couple weeks ago. It's fantastic. Uh, just a great reminder of what marriage is all about and how to succeed uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then we also have Redeemer Counseling here on campus, and they can do marriage counseling. Uh, we have a whole lot of things. Since God really loves marriage, we do too. And so no matter where you're at or no matter what you need in your marriage, we have something for you. Just come and get it. Okay. So uh, we talked about marriage, and we, we can see the cause and the effect and the grand scheme of things, this beautiful picture uh, that God gives to us, and, and then what that, the, the effect that has on us as we think about the ideal marriage, as we think about his unconditional love and his unlimited forgiveness, the unshakable joy that he's pursuing with us, that is a powerful, powerful thing. And therefore, we need to talk about why God would say, uh, you shall not commit adultery. Now, when we do this cause and effect, I want to flip it, and we're going to talk about the effect first. Okay? Um, this is the bear with me time. This is not going to be easy for us, but we need to see this and we need to hear it. We need to uh, internalize this and let it affect us. Okay. Um, here's what we need to start with. When we talk about adultery, I want to, I want to acknowledge that wrapped up in the seventh commandment is all sexual sin or sexual impurity. And we could extend that out to talk about so many things. And in time, I'm sure we will uh, and stuff like that. But today we're going to look at the narrower uh, uh, focus on the commandment and really look at marriage in particular. And so let's use this as a working definition of uh, adultery, uh, physical. And I think we also need to say or emotional intimacy between a married person and someone other than their spouse. Which happens all the time in our country. Uh, Adultery is physical or emotional intimacy between a married person and someone other than their spouse, okay? So with that as a definition, what is the effect? Well, one, we have to look at the practical human uh, effect, and what happens there is absolutely every time, without a doubt, significant permanent damage at best uh, or complete destruction of a marriage and a family uh, at worst-case scenario. That's what happens when adultery takes place. In fact, uh, statistics show that 70% of marriages end after an affair has been discovered. And we can talk about the ripple effects too, uh, the ripple effects on our human nature and how we respond when somebody's a victim of adultery. We can talk about how it's going to be harder for them to trust again. It's going to be harder for them to love again. It's going to be harder for them to just manage for the rest of their lives because the effect that has on them. But, but we have to also, for the sake of time, we have to zoom out and look at the, the big picture here. Because the other reason that God is so uh, furious about adultery and commands us not to commit adultery is because it also, the other effect is it's, there's significant and permanent damage or perhaps complete destruction of people's belief in the faithfulness of God. Because when the picture that is supposed to be this beautiful image of how Christ, the King of Kings, loves His church, when that beautiful picture is shattered, 
Very often so is faith. And therefore, God hates adultery. He hates it. We can see this in his, his viciousness towards adulterers. Look at, uh, got a couple of verses here throughout the Old Testament, uh, some in, one in the New too. Leviticus 20.10, what's the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament? If a man uh, commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, I know that in our day and age, people would say, What? Death penalty for adultery, that's barbaric, that's ridiculous. But when we understand what is involved in marriage and the purpose of marriage and what a beautiful thing marriage is supposed to be and what it's supposed to communicate to people who need to know that God is faithful, you can understand more of why God would be so serious and so furious towards adultery. Uh, Proverbs 6, verse 32. This is as gentle as God gets in the scriptures towards adultery. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Um, a lot of times adultery continues because people think nobody knows. God has several places in scripture where he wants to make sure that he knows. He wants to make sure that we know he knows. Job 24, 15, the eye of the adulterer also waits for twilight saying, no, I will see me. And he veils his face. God wants us to know my eyes see you. I see what you're doing to my beautiful picture of how I love you. And so he does not let this go unpunished. Hebrews 13, verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And I'm not, he's not just talking about here uh, judgment of hell, he's talking about temporal judgments as well. For a believer, that's extreme discipline. Case study. Let's look at David and Bathsheba. It's a perfect example here. You know, in a lot of churches in America, we want to lift up David as this uh, perfect moral guy. Be like David. Here's the picture. This is. We do not want to be like David. We want to love and trust the true and better David, and that's Jesus Christ. But let's look at David's failure. And let's understand. Let's now, as we we've seen the effects of adultery, but let's talk about the causes because they're right here in David's uh, massive failure with Bathsheba. Uh, let's look at this. It's on page 304 if you have the Bibles that we have in front of you. I'm not putting this one on the screen. So please turn to 2 Samuel 11 and look at verses 1 through 5. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. Uh, again, page 304 if you're using the Bible that we provide. Uh, this, is, this is God's word. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and with the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. David... But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around uh, the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. What just happened here? David, King David, the man after God's own heart. Three things. Let's look at these causes. Number one, living for self. We see this in the very first verse of this chapter in the way that David was supposed to be on the battlefield. He was supposed to be out fighting and leading the people of God. He was supposed to be out fulfilling the role that God had called him and equipped him for. But instead, he was home taking a nap. 
And so what we see here is that he had begun to live for a different reason. He had begun to no longer live for God and God alone. He'd started to live for himself. One commentator puts it this way. He says the king had stopped serving, sacrificing, and giving his life away for others. And so therefore we see that David, in in not doing what he's supposed to be doing, he starts living for himself. He starts doing things that, that he thinks will make him happy, whatever it is. Maybe he was resentful of his situation or sick of being at war or whatever it is. The choice he made was to start living for himself and think things are about him and what he needs. And therefore he was totally vulnerable. Totally vulnerable. And therefore... When he was tempted, cause number two, he failed to fight temptation. Now, he probably knew it. He knew he was supposed to fight temptation. Job's one of the oldest books in the, in the Old Testament. And in Job, we see in Job 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes, the clear teaching that uh, temptation is going to happen. But we need to be able to fight it. We need to be determined to fight temptation when it happens. Men, when we see and notice a beautiful woman, that's not sin. That's temptation. And that's what happened here. David sees Bathsheba and instead of fighting temptation and turning away and thinking of baseball or his grandmother or something else that would get his mind off of this, he didn't fight temptation. He stared at her so much so that he asked some guy, hey, who's, who's that? So he gave into temptation. He allowed himself basically to lust. That's the third cause. The third cause of David's adultery is he began to lust. As he continued to look at her and not turn away, not fight temptation, the desire uh, uh, to commit adultery with her became stronger and stronger and stronger because what he was doing is actually committing adultery with her in his mind or in his heart, as Jesus would say. Uh, Many of us know that Jesus teaches in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 5, he says... um, you have, verse 27 and 28, he says, You have heard it said uh, that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus does two things for us there. He shows us that, number one, lust is a sin. Imagining physical intimacy with somebody who's not your spouse is a sin. But he also shows us that there's a trajectory that... When that sin is unchecked and unstopped, the end result is adultery, physical adultery. It's the same thing with murder. Last week, Mike talked about how that if Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not murder, you'll be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you're angry, you are liable to judgment. And what he shows in that is there's a trajectory. He's showing that if you are angry, that's a sin. And if that goes unchecked, that ends up in murder. And he's doing the same thing for us here. He's saying, if you are lusting, if you are imagining the physical intimacy of you and someone who's not your spouse, that's lust. And if you let that keep going, eventually you're going to commit adultery. That is exactly what David did. Jesus shows us so lovingly. He's saying to you, I love you so much. I want you to see that if you start doing these things in your mind, you will start doing these things with your hands and your body. And so he makes that very clear to us. And, there, and I mean, you've got to think about it. If, if, if it can happen to David... It can happen to us. And therefore, we see the third effect. Now we're jumping back to the effect. The third is the judgment. It's a temporal judgment. God, this happens. 
This is how it works. God does not let these things go uh, unpunished in, uh, in this life even. Even for believers, when this happens, he's still going to discipline very harshly. David, obviously a believer. Let's look at what happened to him uh, in the words of Phil Riken. He says this, God certainly held David accountable from the moment the king decided to act on his lust. His life became a tragic series of disappointments. He lost almost everything he had worked so hard to obtain. Bathsheba's son died. David's family was torn apart by rape, incest, and fratricide. His kingdom was divided. His, his beloved son rebelled against him, bringing shame to his father's house, and all for the sake of a few moments in bed. Significant, permanent damage at best, or complete destruction of a marriage, of a family, in this case, even of a child's life. So, how do we, how do we take this... These things, how do we understand these causes and then see that, that if these are the causes of adultery, if, if, if living for yourself and not fighting a temptation and then choosing to lust, if, that's, if these are the things that lead up to this terrible thing happening, uh, what is the application for the disciple of Christ, those who are following Christ and seeking to make more disciples of Christ? Well, it's the opposite of these. Number one, uh, living for Christ. God is calling us to discipleship. And what that is, is to live for Christ, that our life would be completely about Jesus, that we would see the fact that Jesus lived and died and rose again to give us a new life, that we wouldn't live for ourselves, but we would live that new life for others. And the more we are living sacrificially and servingly, the more we are letting Jesus teach us how to be a disciple and living as a disciple, our vulnerability goes down. When we are living for Christ, our vulnerability goes down. Just like when David was living for himself, his vulnerability went way up. So first and foremost, we have got to be on a path of discipleship. We have got to be learning and growing and being formed and and having Christ formed in us, as Paul says in Galatians. Uh, Number two, we need to be able to fight temptation. We've got to have things in place so that when we are tempted, we know how to fight, male or female. Okay, and what's so amazing about this is God does not simply show us we got to fight temptation. He also tells us he's given us power. Verse uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 is one of my favorite verses. It's the best. It's what's such an amazing verse about temptation. You've probably heard it. He says, Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what we see in Scripture there, that's 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God is not just calling us to fight temptation. He's saying, when you're tempted, I'm going to give you a way out. Look for it, run to it, do whatever you got to do. Fight temptation because if we don't, then we end up lusting and then we end up in adultery. Now, the lust, that's, that's the third thing. Uh, application there is we need to avoid lust. We need to... Um, really recognize when we're lusting, when we're imagining these things or thinking about these things or longing for these sinful meetings and, and, or whatever it may be. And we need to be um, recognizing when we lust so that we can shut it down, so that we can stop by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because, and the thing, here's the thing is you can't... This is, about our, this is feelings. This happens in feelings. And so it's not just like you can make feelings just go away. And what's so amazing about discipleship is discipleship is the process by which you don't just stop having bad feelings. You have bad feelings replaced with righteous feelings. That's what discipleship is. Learning and growing to be more like Christ so that you are replacing these evil desires with righteous desires to know and love and serve Christ all the more. That's why we are talking about discipleship so much now and we will be 
going forward every day, we're going to be talking about that because this sets people free. So uh, we are talking about living for Christ. We're talking about learning how to fight temptation. I'm going to show you some resources for that at the end of the sermon. And then we're talking also about uh, fighting against lust. We've got resources for that too. Uh, but you also have, uh, well, I'll mention some books at the end, but we also have the Samson Society here, which is for people who want to get honest about the sin they're struggling with. doesn't have to be sexual sin. can be any sin, but that happens here on Sunday nights at seven. And then again, your life groups, great place to say to the people, Hey, I need some help. I'm struggling. Great place to actually be honest about the fact that we really are sinners and we really do need Jesus and let those people come around you and strengthen you. Okay. So Talked about the cause and effect of breaking. Now, can we talk about the cause and effect of keeping the seventh commandment, of faithfulness? I want you to realize something here. We are never told to obey under our own power. That is foreign to the Scriptures. We are told that we obey by the power of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us in Christ and through faith in Christ. This is how. This is how we're going to obey. This is how we're going to live for Christ. It's how we're going to fight temptation. It's how we're going to avoid lust. It's all going to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the cause of obedience is the Holy Spirit applying the gospel. In our hearts, as we, con- as we continue to seek to become disciples and, and make disciples of Christ, the Holy Spirit is applying the gospel into our hearts. And it's the Holy Spirit that will give us the power to obey. Paul says in uh, Galatians 5.16, he says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's making sure we understand there and so many places all through the New Testament. He's saying, don't do this on your own. You need to walk by the Spirit. You need to believe that the Holy Spirit is inside of you, giving you power to obey in whatever form obedience plays for you in your particular situation here. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is within you to give you power to to do these things. And the effect, the cause is the Holy Spirit applying the gospel to us. The effect is the Holy Spirit advancing the gospel and empowering us to make disciples here and around the world. I want you to, uh, I want to address three categories of people. Again, I want to acknowledge that there's people in this room that have never committed adultery. There are people in this room who have committed adultery. And there are people in this room who are the victims of adultery, whether a spouse or a child of an adulterer. I know that there are those three uh, categories here. And I want to show you how glorious God is in the way that obedience is set up for us here, no matter what category you are in. For example, those of us who have never committed adultery physically, okay, I think we better be all honest about we've all lusted in our minds. Everybody has. If you don't think you have, I promise you you have. It's a sin that happens. Okay? But I want to talk about those of us who have not committed adultery physically. Uh, our obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit is to remain faithful, to continue to love our spouses unconditionally, to offer unlimited forgiveness, to, to pursue unshakable joy with each other. And what that does is it preaches the gospel. Those of us who have not committed adultery are able to show the world the love of Christ through our marriages and through the joy that our marriages produce. We can show the world, look, there is a God. His name is Jesus. He's a guru. 
groom and his people are the bride and he is perfectly faithful to them and he loves them deeply and he, un, he forgives all of their sin and he's, and, he's, and he's seeking this unshakable joy with them. Our marriages can communicate that to a lost and dying world. Our marriages can do that as we seek to obey this commandment. And so what I would say to you is the seventh commandment is a, is a plea, is a, is a command also for all of us to preach the gospel through our marriages. Isn't that amazing? How about adulterers? You actually have an equally amazing opportunity to preach the gospel through your response to this commandment. Because you who have committed adultery can show the world the love of Christ through receiving forgiveness and righteousness from Him through faith. You can show the world as you truly believe it, as you look to Christ and truly and deeply believe that Jesus Christ took with Him to the cross your sin of adultery and was punished for it. And now it is gone. It is is as far from you as the east is from the west if you believe in Jesus. And what has been replaced or what has been put in its place is the righteousness of Christ. You, although you've committed adultery, you absolutely need to know that when you stand before a holy and just judge on judgment day, God will not look at you and see a scarlet letter. He will see the righteousness of his son. You need to hear that. You need to feel the cleansing power of justification by faith. You need to know you are forgiven if you believe. And as you live in that and experience tremendous peace in that, you preach the gospel with your life. Uh, Victims. There are people in the room who are victims of adultery, and I want you to know uh, I don't know how you feel. Uh, I think probably the only people who have a remotely close idea to what you feel is other people who are victims of adultery, spouses or children of adulterers. But what I do know is that your pain is absolutely real. It is absolutely valid. It is absolutely eviscerating. I know, I know. I mean, just thinking about it just kills me. Isn't it like God to put the people who have been hurt so deeply in position to proclaim the gospel so powerfully Listen to me, your opportunity as somebody who has, is a victim of adultery, your opportunity is this. By the power of the gospel, believing that you've truly been forgiven and made righteous in Christ, you are able to extend forgiveness to your uh, unfaithful spouse. You can show the world the love of Christ through forgiving the person who was unfaithful to you. I want you to think about this. To do that, I know it's really hard. I can't imagine how hard that would be. But and no matter what happens with the marriage, you would be able to, that you can, by the power of the gospel, you can work hard and even suffer and suffer greatly because you know at the end of that suffering, you're going to be able to say to that person, I forgive you. And I promise you, there's very few ways in this world to be more Christ-like than that. That is what Christ did because the Bible teaches all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, what we are, all of us, are spiritual adulterers. Every time we've sinned, it's been us being unfaithful to our perfect husband, Jesus Christ. And so we have this ama- you have this amazing opportunity, those of you who have been uh, victims of adultery, to do exactly what Jesus did, which, is, which means to go and suffer greatly, to get to the end of that suffering and then be able to say profoundly and powerfully, I forgive you. To be a person who suffers in order to say, I forgive you, to an unfaithful spouse is about as Christ-like as it gets. 
But I want to say this too. Um, even forgiving, the pain is permanent. I believe that. I know people that were victims of adultery decades and decades ago. And it's hard for them to go to weddings. And it's hard for them to hear about engagements because their pain is still real. And I know that. And you know that. But what we also know is that the gospel does not simply teach about forgiveness. It does not simply teach about us being changed to be more like Christ in this life. But it promises that one day Jesus Christ is going to return. And when he returns, he's going to make all things new. And when he does that, listen to me, victims, when he does that, he's going to take away all of your pain. And you need to believe that deeply, that one day your true and faithful husband will return. And on that day, on that wedding day, every ounce of pain you've ever had over your being victimized in adultery will be gone. And you'll, <gasps> you'll feel this amazing liberation from that pain. He's going to kill it. So wait for him. And as you look to the day when he returns to make all things new and kill your pain, you are preaching the gospel with your life. What an opportunity. What a, what a God. Isn't it amazing we have a God who can take the worst of situations and make them bring him so much glory. So let's obey by the power of the Holy Spirit, whatever category we're in. Let's preach the gospel with our lives so that more people in this world, in this city, can know about this one true, faithful, never failing, never stopping, perfect husband, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King. Let's pray. Father, we just want to acknowledge that we are all adulterers, at least spiritually. And why you would send your son to be a king who would die for his people, we we'll, may never completely understand, but we'll believe it. With the power of your spirit, we can believe it. So uh, hammer this home, especially to those who are hurting deeply over their sins of adultery, especially over those who are hurting deeply over the sins against them. Give us hope. Continue to give us yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407-384-3300.